future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Hey everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. It is a very hot Friday. Yes, it is Friday, July 22nd, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Podcast. It is our Friday politics roundup all. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. Become a patron today. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. Yes, we are up to 214 subscriptions, everybody. Keep it going. Loving it. Loving it. Uh, let's see if we can push that up to the 250 mark. Also, don't let friends... Well, friends don't let friends, we should say. Just don't let Paul Martino and friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted PAC to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Ooh, lots going on, lots going on. Uh, I should say right off the, right off the bat, uh, early on I put out the announcement that Amy Connect was going to be here with me today as my co-host. Um, we kind of got our scheduling crossed a little bit, kind of a little mix-up, so sorry about that. She'll be on next week. Um, so today... It's just me here in my lonesome. Um, so this week's show, uh, January 6th committee uh, brought part one of their public hearings to a close last night by showing the world what Donald Trump did not do during the insurrection. It's kind of a weird thing to have to show, but there you go. We also got to see tough guy Josh Hawley running from the mob like a frightened little bunny. Yep, he's the guy who wrote that book, whatever his book is like masculine masculinity or something like that <laughs> crazy dude and yes the climate is in crisis it's not something that will happen it is happening the uk saw record setting temperatures of 104 degrees this week and much of western europe and the united states is experienced or is experiencing uh, extreme heat as we go on this is only getting worse the wildfires also ravaging much of Spain, um, ports, parts of Portugal, um, London, the city of London was on fire. They said it was the most number of fires of the busiest day since World War II. Chew on that for a bit. And Moms for Liberty, yes, held its first national conference this week in Florida and pledged to deepen their assault on school boards and multiracial democracy. Florida Governor and GOP presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis and the National Republican Senatorial Committee Chair, Senator Rick Scott, headlined the event. So let's just be clear here, folks. There is no distance between the extreme right and the official Republican Party. Can we be clear about that for once? Again, right? My weekly reminder, I guess. 
And a new survey finds that more than half of higher education workers are making plans to leave their jobs or academe altogether. 57.2% said that they were likely to leave their jobs while about, um, or they were somewhat likely to leave their jobs, while about 35% said that they were they are likely or very likely to get out within the next 12 months. A host of reasons for that, but uh, a lot of that has to do with, you know, um, post-pandemic, people basically saying, you know what, I don't need to put up with the crap. <laughs> so let me get out. I'm sick of the low pay, sick of the constant paperwork, the content assessment, the assaults by management. You know what? This is not what they signed up for. This week, the House also voted to codify marriage equality into law with the Respect for Marriage Act. The big question now is, will the Democratic Senate leaders fumble the ball? They've got a political gift. It was handed to them by the House. And are they going to kind of like go and vote on it and make people vote on it? Or are they going to try to pretend that there's good Republicans out there? We shall see. And writing in The Guardian, Steve Phillips is asking the right question. Why are Democratic billionaires backing white candidates over better candidates of color? As he writes, quote, not only is it a bad look and a continuation of institutional racism in a party that is nearly half people of color, but most immediately, it's bad electoral politics. Yes. We saw that right. We saw that right up right here in our own backyard. Right. We saw this with uh, 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 Summer Lee. Right. Um, and that Summer Lee's pictures at the head of this article in The Guardian. Right. And they say right there, a super PAC that was flushed with millions from white billionaires spent three million dollars trying to defeat Summer Lee, a progressive black female state legislator. Right. As we know the story. Right. They tried to back a union busting moderate to right Democratic challenger to Summer Lee to try to get her out. Summer Lee, of course, won. Right. Crazy. A little closer to home, a new article in the Huffington Post exposed that the PA uh, GOP gubernatorial candidate, Doug Mastriano, paid the extreme right-wing social media site Gab $5,000 in consultant fees. If you're not familiar, Gab was one of the platforms that was central to the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh. Bucks County Republican committee woman Dawn Bancroft was sentenced to two months in jail plus three years of probation for her role in the January 6th insurrection. Bancroft filmed herself after leaving the Capitol saying, quote, we were looking for Nancy Pelosi to shoot her in the freaking brain. Yep, that's just a taste of today's Bucks County GOP. And in today's last call, long-awaited Dungeons & Dragons Adventures book, Journey Through the Radiant Citadel, was released this week. Yes, I'm so excited. The book contained 13 standalone adventures drawing from non-European myths and traditions, and the settings of the adventures were also written by non-white writers. It's the latest move by Wizards of the Coast, the company that owns them, um, to diversify the game as its popularity grows. And speaking of D&D, this, uh, this could be uh, the, uh, speaking towards the demise of the game, <laughs> or the popularity, we shall see. But, yep, they're trying to branch out into movies. You have a new trailer for the movie Dungeons & Dragons Honor of Among, Thie Among Thieves also dropped this week. The film is expected to hit theaters in March 2023. And I just got news this morning. You know that Amy Connect and I have been reading The Wheel, and uh, the Wheel of Time, and at some point this summer we'll actually have that discussion <laughs> of that book. Um... But uh, it was just announced that they released the uh, or they made the announcement that Wheel of Time will be renewed for a third season. Um, and that is before even season two is released. Season two is expected to be released in something like, uh, I don't know, November, I think, is what they're planning on. 
Anyways, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream from 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook, or subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Head on over to ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And it's official, right? It's beneficial, actually. Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, they're in their season two. They're in the center of season two, and they're absolutely necessary right now, and they are flooding the streams. You can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And attention all you gamers out there, The Game In, that's with two N's, The Game In is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, literally walls of Funko Pops. I kid you not. Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In with two N's. If you got a question about a game, you're looking for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Special shout-out, as always, goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Dayman. That's with two N's, at Song of Dayman on Twitter. And I hope you're able to catch our uh, our awesome uh, show this past week on Out the Coop Live with William Horn. Uh, we talked about uh, the problem, the need to actually call fascism what it is, fascism, right? Stop beating around the bush. Um, around the bush. We talked to Will Horn. Uh, I'm sorry, William Horn, who is uh, he's one of the co-founders of the Activist History Review. We Look at some of the history of fascism, some of the background of it, what's actually happening in our country right now. Do check out that show. And this coming Monday, um, Alyssa Bowen will be back on the show to talk about the right-wing dark money that is funding the anti-abortion movement's attempts to take control of state legislatures. Alyssa is a senior researcher and managing editor at the Progressive Watchdog Group on True North Research. Um, she co-wrote um, two articles in Truth Out with uh, Evan Vorpal and Julia Peck, um, documenting um, these kind of right-wing groups and how they're kind of funneling money into statewide anti-abortion groups. And look, if we want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punch's homegrown progressive media today by becoming a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, everybody, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media and the movement, the movement and the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Ooh, boy. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. Emily, yes, it is a good but steamy morning. Indeed, it is. Uh, it is a hot one, everybody, and... Uh, I know right now uh, we're up to, at least according to my computer, we're at about 88 degrees um, at just after 11 a.m. on this Friday. And uh, tomorrow it's expected to uh, peak uh, kind of close to 100 um, in Philadelphia and the, out, the outlying areas. Um, that, of course, is cool by some standards. Uh, what we saw that Arizona has been uh, in a heat advisory all week with temperatures peaking regularly over 114 degrees. Uh, for the first time in since records have been caught, been kept, uh, we saw that in the UK, we saw uh, London and some of the other areas topping 104 degrees. Uh, that is an area that is, you know, typically nowhere near that in the summer. Um, I think the previous record was something like like 94 or something like this. Um, 
So climate change is here, folks. Um, you know, I was also talking to, you know, what he talked, I didn't put this in the show notes, but um, I was mentioning this to some people this past week. We were just talking about the weather and the climate. And I don't know if you've seen these videos, too, of uh, there's people that are, you know, kind of climbing mountains up where glaciers are and some of the glaciers are collapsing. Um, there was this one, uh, I want to say it was in Turkey, but it's, uh, I'm not sure if it's right. <clears throat> well, one guy was, uh, he was a photographer and he was kind of filming stuff as, uh, up in the mountains. He was climbing and uh, he heard something. He kind of started, started to film it and sure enough, a huge chunk of glacier broke off and kind of as an avalanche came down, he was able to duck behind a rock <clears throat> and do it. Uh, and of course, you know, avalanche is bad enough. Uh, a glacier avalanche is even worse because you're talking about hard ice and rock embedded, or ice embedded with rock. But anyways, <clears throat> this is where we're at. This is where we're at. So uh, I don't know how many of you watch the, uh, the primetime summer, like, you know, I don't know, finale, if you will, of uh, like season one of the January 6th hearings, at least the public hearings. Um, I watched a, I watched kind of a good chunk of it last night. Um, uh, frankly, I, I found last uh, the last night's hearings a little bit anticlimactic in the sense that um, most of what was talked about last night was uh, was previously known. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> there were some kind of good tidbits in there. Of course, you had more Republicans who worked closely with Trump in um, testifying. You had uh, the kind of White House uh, lawyer. Um, coming in and basically uh, he did not testify publicly. He testified to the hearing, but it was videotaped and they paid, uh, played portions of the clips. Again, standing behind kind of, you know, executive privilege and privilege information that he could not share about what Trump specifically said and things like this. Um, but you can see that, you know, it's a kind of hearing that I guess had to happen. It was focused on that, whatever, 187 minutes um of the attack on the Capitol where Trump did nothing but sit in the dining room and watch his supporters assault the, the you know, the nation's capital um, and for the insurrection and praising them, rewinding them, rewatching them. Um, everyone in his like his family, his advisors, according to all this testimony, were urging him to do something. <clears throat> he refused. Not want to do anything. <clears throat> um, wanted them to do. Wanted, you know, the insurrectionists to do exactly what they did. So I mean, that's kind of the you know the the tip of the spear, if you will, right? They're trying to kind of lead it all back to Trump. <clears throat> the one thing, the one thing was a little bit notable while last night is that uh, the committee has been very generous to uh, Republicans who have been testifying, and I, you know, as a purely. As uh, for the purposes of the hearings, I totally understand that. I totally get that, um, that you want these Republicans to come forward and testify about what actually happening, as long as they're going to be telling the truth about what happened. Um, but we should be absolutely clear that these people were died, you know, died in the wool Trump supporters, right? These are not people who were kind of like were dragged into the Trump administration. They were supporters of a matter of fact, um, the, I'm going to forget her name. The woman who, who uh, testified last night, she worked in Trump's communications um, this press office. 
um, she basically said, you know, she was along. She would campaign for Trump. She was out on the trail. She was uh, um, uh, a strong supporter of him. The other guy who was there testifying talked about all Trump's great accomplishments and how proud he was to serve in the administration. Right. So these are people who enabled everything that happened during the Trump administration. These are the people who have enabled and have deepened the ties to kind of right wing extremists in our country. Right. So let's just be clear about that. Uh, but for the most part, the hearings have kind of kept a little distance from um, going after the, um, the enablers. Um, last night, I, I have to say it was pretty great to see uh, Liz Cheney go after um, Lynn, Lynn Cheney, Liz Cheney, go after um, uh, Josh Hawley a little bit. Um, Josh Hawley, of course, you know, he's the uh, he's thinks very highly of himself and he's a leader of the kind of right wing and uh, the the one who's basically helped fan the flames around conspiracy theories. Um, he's going whole hog in anti LGBTQ um, politics and, and hearings on Capitol Hill and in his own campaign. And he's the one who's like, you know, pictured with his his fist up um, out to the out to the insurrectionists, basically say, yes, you're doing great. Well, they got camp. They got you know video footage of him basically running, basically at full speed away from the mob as they were coming there, like a scared little bunny. Um, you know, it's just, it's just, it's one of those things, right? It's one of those things that, you know, yes, it's all shot in Freud. I get it, um, um, but you know, it is what it is. Um, I have to say that, you know. <sighs> They did point a little bit more to some of those Republicans, but, you know, it is what it is. So we're going to see what's going on. And look, I, I do is anything I actually I met with um, uh, some of my friends that, you know, friends from college. We kind of thanks to my friend Stu, who lives in Northern Ireland right now. He's uh, or has, you know, lived. He, he lives there. He's not right now. He lives there. Um, thanks to Stu's efforts, he kind of uh, wrangles uh, us from. Uh, all the different places he's in he's in northern ireland we got uh one of our friends out in oakland another one in las vegas another one in uh, uh rhode island another one in massachusetts and then me here in pennsylvania so we're kind of all over the place um uh, but we do you know try to get together like once a month over zoom to kind of talk about stuff and uh, we were talking about these hearings and one of the things that um one of the things i did say uh you know during that and i really kind of think you know as we were talking about it kind of crystallizes like look these hearings, in my view, are absolutely essential for kind of the historical record, right? Um, they're absolutely essential so we know what actually happened, right? That it's on record of what actually happened so that it kind of drives a wedge or a wedge like a like a, a, a nail or a spike into the truth, right? And basically says, we're planting this truth flag right here and we're going to make it immovable so you can't run away from it and pretend this stuff didn't happen. But in terms of what's actually going to happen in terms of prosecutions, um, um, I, I'm not expecting a whole lot out of it. I don't think Trump is going to be held accountable. <clears throat> now, maybe I'll be wrong and I'll be super happy to be wrong. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think he's going to go to jail. Um, <clears throat> all those people came and testified. Right. Um, I'm sure the understanding is that they're not going to face any kind of criminal penalty or kind of um, persecution. And a matter of fact, you know, by them coming forward and testifying, they're doing a little bit of, a, you know, image rehabilitation. You know, they're doing a little bit of a little laundering of their reputations, right, to make sure that they are going to consistently be able to continue the work um, that they did during the Trump administration before that, right? So we're ending up this, you know, the hearing with a message that's saying Trump bad man. 
uh, without a really solid understanding of how the Republican Party itself enabled all this stuff to happen. Right. I'm very thankful about what they did and they tracked what was um, what what the right wing was doing, in particular with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. I thought that was absolutely essential to get that into the kind of mainstream bloodstream, because, look, you talk about Proud Boys and you talk about Oath Keepers. You talk about the three percenters, all these kind of like right wing militia people that say, for example, uh, Cyril Michaleko at the Bucks County Beacon has been tracking so closely um, that, you know, and back at Raging, Raging Chicken, before we even were doing a podcast, we were tracking this stuff uh, in Pennsylvania. We we're tracking Klan uh, rallies. We were talking this this alt right extremism and a kind of attacks and, you know, trying to get people to pay attention. They're like, ah, oh, these people, they, they don't matter. They don't matter. They don't matter. Well, you know, guess what? Ten years later, they sure as hell mattered, right? We tried to kind of warn the, you know, sound the alarm bells early on, but people weren't listening. Um, so for that purpose, to get these names, to get the, the, their understanding of this kind of white supremacy and these kind of extremist, uh, extremist militia groups and so on, and their role and their power right now into the kind of like the mainstream discourse is absolutely critical. So that I'm thankful for. Um, but, you know, I, I have very, very limited expectations about um, what's actually going to happen. Um, <clears throat> as Emily says uh, in chat right now, the only way to approach these hearings is for Garland to get off the fence and start arresting the legislative GOP who are complicit. It's the best way to short circuit fascism and clean house. I agree 100%. Now, Garland, I did have to say, you know, Garland did come out and, you know, he said that their investigation is continuing. They're not doing their investigations in public. Um, they expect to bring charges. I don't know if he said that exactly, but he made it seem like they were pursuing um, um, certain crimes. We'll see. We'll see. There's a lot of people kind of are kind of carrying water for Merrick Garland right now, basically saying, well, you know, he's just a soft spoken guy, but really he's a tough guy underneath, you know, whatever. I'll believe it when I see it. Right? I'm not going to sit there and try to pretend that, you know, he's wearing a white hat or something like this. He's another politician. Right. Come on. So we shall see. We shall see. Um, the climate stuff, as I said, up, up, the, up the top has just been has been nuts, um, devastating. And we're, we're going to see where this goes. Biden did come out and he tried to do some kind of executive orders that we're going to have, you know, they're going to have some. And look, they're going to have some impact, but the impact is going to be along the edges. Uh, on the one hand, he wants to open up these spaces in the Gulf of Mexico and some other other areas for wind farms. But at the same time, he seems to be kind of expanding oil and gas leases. Right. So, you know, it's really hard to see that as a win or uh, climate forward. Um, now, he threatened basically to declare a climate emergency and use the War Powers Act as a way of kind of addressing the climate crisis. We'll see. We'll see. That would be a great move. I'm 100% before it, but I don't trust it as far as I can throw it. Right. So I'm not going to get excited about like a someone saying, right, an administration saying that, oh, if X, Y and Z doesn't happen, then I might possibly think that I might do something like this. You know, I don't care how forcefully I say it, if you're not going to actually pull the trigger and the other side knows full well that you're not going to pull the trigger, that you're going to continue to pursue a policy of we got to have all the Republicans on. You're not willing to get rid of the filibuster in order to pass this. Then then what are you doing? You're just wasting airtime. Right. So so we'll see. Um, not very hopeful on that score. 
This is something to watch out for. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know that my line of why the school board elections for the past two cycles have been so important was, yes, at a local level, they're critical because these extremists, a.k.a. Bucks County Republicans, these extremists are targeting our school boards, would take over our school boards to eliminate kind of like, you know, any kind of multicultural education, to eliminate social emotional learning, right, to attack the LGBT, LGBTQ um, community, right, um, to um, claim not to be racist while enacting policies that are clearly going to disproportionately impact and harm people of color, right? Those things at the most immediate level, those school board elections are absolutely critical, right? But just like years ago, when Sean Kitchen and I were talking about the rise of the alt-right and white nationalists within Pennsylvania, when nobody wanted to listen, what people don't want to hear, right, but I think is absolutely critical to understand, was that what was happening at the school boards, right, was, is the trial run, right? They are getting their house in order. These are laboratories for innovation, to use that word, right, for the right wing. And they are learning, right? They have an organized infrastructure even at the county level, not just here in Bucks County, but across the country. And they're learning from this. And now the Moms of Liberty, who's, you know, they've just been around for like less than a year, I think, or a year maybe, right? They're the ones who have been showing up in Montgomery County, um, down at um, North Penn. Uh, they're the ones who started making it over um, into Central Bucks. And these folks basically had this conference and they came right out and they said, yep, we are going to continue to go after um, the school boards. So this is NBC News reporting right here. For example, attendees. Uh, oh, wait, so let me go back to this. So you hear the, the context at the beginning. <clears throat> uh, 18 months after a pair of former school board members in Florida founded Moms for Liberty, the group's first national gathering drew 500 people, including major Republican figures, to a waterfront hotel here this is in Tampa, demonstrating the growing political influence of these conservative activists. The organization's rapid ascension, uh, this is important, um, its leaders say has nearly 100,000 members across 195 chapters in 37 states, has been driven by the appeal of its core issues among conservatives, including battling mask mandates in schools, banning library books and, that address sexuality and gender identity, and curtailing lessons on ra racial inequity and discrimination, as its founders say. The conference in Tampa uh, was a moment for its members to meet like-minded parents, reflect on their success in shaping a national debate around school curriculum policies, and learn how to spread their message further. They strategize on what they want to do next, elect their own candidates to school boards, pass state legislation, and diminish the influence of teachers' unions. There you go. Now, if you remember, in one of the last meetings um, at in Central Bucks, when Paul Martino, right, the kind of little billionaire Silicon Valley made billionaires, Paul Martino, um, got up and gave his, you know, like self-authored white paper, basically, right? I mean, I, he didn't author it directly, right? But whatever. I mean, this is like said what he wanted to say. And we've already gone through that. It poked all the holes in it. Uh, Dina Lagerman did a great job taking that all apart and, and you know, showing it that it was nonsense. But at that meeting, 
in addition to furthering his anti-mask stuff, his uh, COVID denial, his uh, um, anti, you know, the anti-DEI initiatives from other folks in the crowd, he also kind of gave us that preview of what's to come. Right. He basically pointed to the two Democratic women who were elected to um, the school board and said that because PSEA, right, the, the teachers union, because they supported the teachers union supported those two candidates, that they should excuse themselves from upcoming contract negotiations with the union. Right. And he just kind of laid there. He didn't go in to say a whole bunch of it, right? But that he kind of echoed that if a few people say that. And that and I said at the time, this is the preview. This is where they're going next. The, like Central Bucks has got a contract negotiations coming up, and they are going to do their best to go after the teachers union. And that's where it's at. And so basically what they're saying is that if you are allied with the teachers and the teachers union then you cannot be on that negotiating team. Only enemies of the teachers in the teachers union can be on that negotiation committee. <laughs> you see how that works? It's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. So anyways, that's, and Moms for Liberty is another one of these organizations. Now, again, they started just like, you know, right for bucks, Andy Meehan's, um, a place down there, right? Um, just, uh, his stuff down there just like starts as this kind of local, local billionaire, millionaire, whatever, right? Has all this money and has kind of a thing, an idea that wanted to propagate. He's got all the money to make that happen, to build an infrastructure. That's what they do. Starts there, builds out. And Paul Martino, which is why we started this pack, right? This kind of local, um, localized pack um, to basically say, no, we got to stop people like Paul Martino from being able to influence our, um, our school board elections. But Paul Martino, he gave an interview to the New York Times, right? He had a two-part pod podcast, and they focused on Paul Martino in part two. They talked about, Paul Martino said, that, okay, now that he's basically built this machine, he's got to figure out what, how he wants to deploy it next, right? So he's well aware, and he is this guy who wants to be that next, you know, that next kind of kingmaker, Right. Wants to build that next right wing organization. Right. Uh, with him at the at the forefront. Right. So we got to watch that. This is the other reason why, you know, again, this is a little shifting gears a little bit. But this is why uh, I wanted to have Alyssa Bowen back on the show from True North Research on Monday. So we start looking at the dark money, the right wing dark money that are funding the anti-abortion groups um, that are trying to kind of take over state legislatures. Because we need to know where that money is, too, as well. We need to know how they're coming at us and what their messaging is going to be. Uh, Amy Kay sent me a um, uh, a message earlier, uh, so yesterday or the day before, uh, there was a show on Radio Times um, when they interviewed, you know, people talking about the Pennsylvania legislature um, passing, you know, on, you know, in the dark of night, classic, right, the last possible moment, um, passing um, kind of a wanting to have a constitutional amendment that would kind of make abortion illegal in Pennsylvania, right? Um and the first part of that program, there's one of the state legislators, I can forget her name, she's from York County, um, one of the sponsors of the bill, uh, or sponsors of the amendment, um, had all the talking points. This changes nothing. Right now, this changes nothing. Everything is the same, right? And Marty Mosquain pushed a little bit on it to try to get her to kind of make her a little bit uncomfortable. But basically, 
there's it's everything is set up right it's true right now as of this moment nothing happens and the woman kept on saying the representative kept on saying hey it's just leaving it up to democracy leaving it up to the people to decide but the way that it's set up it's set up so that it's the amendment it has to go through these two different cycles and if the amendment passes and something like 43 out of 49 of the past amendments passes because look most people are not tapped into all those little special things that you're reading and the way that they craft the language they're crafting the language to make it sound uh, make it appeal to most people they don't realize what's going on and say oh, okay i guess i'll vote for that when realizing it's a constitutional amendment to take away your right to abortion and she's like well that's not what it does it just that leaves it up to your, your elected representatives which she knows very well that because of the way that this uh, the way that, you know, our districts work, that we have a Republican dominated um, legislature, right, both at the House and the Senate. And she's banking on their able to keep that so that and then um, gain enough seats so that they will be able to overturn any veto if a um, Democratic governor um, gets elected in the fall. And that's not a shoe. So anyways, so Moms for Liberty, yep, they are gearing up, right? And we should see this, right? They're having, they had their national conference. The fact that you've got the one of the uh, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, who you know, has pretty much declared himself as a candidate for presidency um, in uh, 2024, um, he's headlining that group. So it shows you where he's putting his chips. Why is he kind of appearing at Moms for Liberty, this small organization? It's because he knows that that's where the foot soldiers are, right? Same thing goes with Senator Rick Scott. Same deal, right? He is the National Republican Senatorial Committee chair, right? He's ahead of that, which means he's looking forward to elections and keeping the Senate majority. What does that mean? It means that he's looking for where the foot soldiers are, right? And they recognize Moms for Liberty are those foot soldiers. So even if the official Republican Party doesn't, isn't as extreme in its rhetoric as say Moms for Liberty, right? Moms for Liberty has been given the signal, right? There's basically saying, we're with you. The Republicans are with you, right? So even if we're not saying exactly the same thing, we're together. And so the Moms of Liberty like will whip up the people in the streets through all their kind of, you know, the, the racist white supremacist nonsense that will happen in our schools, right? It'll get that right wing activated, right, in order to try to maximize their kind of electoral gains. That's the game plan. And this is why, like I said, this is where I started this off is like, that's why we wanted to pay so much attention to the school boards and why we started this pack. Is because we are going to be going up against people like that. Right. And Moms for Liberty is not broke. Okay. Okay. In other news, a uh, new survey finds more than half of higher education workers are making plans to leave their job. Yeah, that is true. Uh, a friend of mine um, posted something this week. She said that she was, uh, she's like, I think I'm burned out. You know, I'm, I think I'm burned out. And this is, and she's like just an amazing academic. She's just awesome. And she's, like, I think I'm burned out. And, uh, I have little desire to do anything other than care for my family and find moments. I can't remember exactly how she put it, but it was like moments of, you know, peace in my daily life. Right. Um, 
and and I, you know, I'm like, hey, I've been there. I've been there for for years now. And I, I, I can't tell you how many people I know who are in higher ed who are at this point. So, you know, one of the things I've come to realize is that higher education is just a weird place to be in for a lot of reasons, right? Um, especially I'm a, you know, uh, you know, I'm a, a unionist, right? So I'm a unionized faculty member. Um, and there's so much, there's, there's at times, there's so much that happens within higher education where, you know, among faculty members, where the, the pull of union, of solidarity, of being together, working together, um, is at odds with the ethos of academe, which is about, you know, build your, you know, become your own little star. You know, be your own little star. Um, and to have always, always have ambition, personal ambition, right? And, you know, and that personal ambition should drive everything, right? And that's how wedges get created and everything like this. So that, that idea about personal ambition and me, 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 and my own little focus and my own little world is often at odds with building a kind of a strong union or a community. And I think those things have been really um, pitted against each other by this, this, this layer of this next layer of austerity, the next layer of um, kind of, you know, this assessment stuff that, you know, just, just infects everything to people are asking, say, okay, look, I started this with a lot of kind of ambition and desire to do a lot of good stuff. Um, I still, and I can't tell you how this is the other thing I hear all the time. I love teaching but everything else that I have to do is just makes me depressed. Right. And that's coming from, these are, you know, stories that are coming a lot of, a lot of cases that, that I'm kind of thinking about as I'm, I'm saying these, all these words um, are people who are in tenure track or tenured positions. Right. We didn't, this is not what we signed up for. I certainly feel that way. Right. I don't want to have to fight other faculty members, right, over, say, proving that, like, my field has worth, <laughs> for example, and having to argue these petty things over, you know, who's better than the next one? I mean, just, it's just whatever. I mean, for me, it's never been about that, but th that's, a, that's another story. Um, but, you know, the bigger issue, of course, is that, like 70%, well, you know, between 60 and 70%. So it's like, let's say 65. Uh, I don't know what the exact number is right this second. But, you know, you're talking about faculty members who are adjunct laborers, who are working in non-tenure track positions, um, often getting paid just like piecemeal work, right? With barely benefits, if benefits, right? Don't have any job security, they started getting into higher education. They wanted to become teachers. They wanted to become academics. They wanted to be researchers because they cared about it. They were interested in the work. They were interested in teaching. They were interested in ideas. But at some point you start saying like, is this really worth it? I mean, I'm basically doing, I didn't take a vow of poverty to become sort of, you know, some kind of knowledge priest. No. All those years I went to school, all that schooling I got, all the stuff, and I was promised that, yes, this is, this is what you do. This is how you achieve this stuff. This is part of that, you know, 
Then you have the credentials. Then you're the expert in your field. And then you find out you work for an administrator who doesn't care, who thinks that your expertise means nothing. Right? And then you have to deal with that next layer of having the other of your colleagues, you know, they believe that their expertise is better than your expertise. And so you got to fight that little battle too as well. It's exhausting. The writing for this has been on the wall for a while. This is happening across education. And, you know, I'm not going to go and do the long tie-in back to, you know, 40 years of, of kind of right-wing kind of assault on, on education. Um, you can listen to previous shows if you really want to hear that. But that's really what it's at, right? That's really where it comes from. We say the same thing happened in K through 12 stuff. Right now, there's a you know um, teacher crisis. We've re been reporting on that kind of you know over over the last several weeks, months, um, and Governor Wolf just kind of put forward a new proposal that would basically say, here's how we're going to kind of you know make sure we have enough teachers in the fall. We'll see, but those teachers too as well. They're they're burnt out, and the pandemic was only a pause. That allowed to a different allowed you to see a different version of what was possible, long enough to take a breath and ask yourself the question: Is it worth it? And you know, we'll, we shall see. I mean, you know, we shall see. Like I said, and uh, I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but the uh, um, the um, ABSCUF has got you know this, we're starting contract negotiations um, this fall. I think in August is their first meeting, and. Um, Yes, there's been an increase in the budget for Apache. We're still below like historic levels, but um, I expect the assaults to continue, right? And what's going to be the consequences of that? We shall see. We shall see. Um, good news, of course, that that the uh, House voted to codify marriage equality into law. Um, this is coming after um, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas made it clear. That, uh, yes, we took down Roe v. Wade and then his dissent basically said these are the other things also that uh, are not in the Constitution and that were wrongly decided. Right. And one of them was Ogrefeld, which was um, the case that basically um, Supreme Court case that um, um, affirmed marriage equality. Right. That same sex marriage was the same as any other kind of marriage. Right. Marriage equality. So now, and what had happened in the dissent, if you remember in the Supreme Court case in Roe, they've said, look, this is up to the, the legislature. This is up to the law. This is the Supreme Court overreached, right? Whatever. Um, this is why the House now is basically, okay, no, we're going to codify all these other things. We're actually going to put it in the law. We're going to have, we are the representatives. We are the legislative branch, and we are going to write this law, and we are going to push it. And it passed. It happened. Even 47 Republicans even joined on, Right. Um, that's a whatever, like a quarter of their their caucus. But still, I mean, it's, you know, again, you could legitimately say that's a bipartisan consensus in the in the House. And now that is going to go to the Senate. And now if you check out yesterday, uh, uh, Emma Viglin in on the majority report basically laid this out. Right. It was exactly what I was thinking. And she basically said it. I was like, OK, there you have it <laughs> right there. Uh, like, look, right now. The Democrats need to press the advantage. This is something that is popular. This is something that people wanted. This is, these are rights that people currently have. Right? You want to make sure that those are protected. Right? The vast majority of the American people are behind it. So why would you not take this like bipartisan consensus bill that comes out of the House and pass it in the Senate? Well, 
Chuck Schumer came out and basically paused a little. So, well, we got to see if we can kind of line up the votes in the Senate. We've got to make sure that we can kind of get the Republicans, the Republicans that we need. What he basically said is two things. One, apparently already there's already four, I think, four Republican senators who said they're going to vote for the bill. Right. So in other words, the Senate could pass it if they got rid of the filibuster. But because Schumer, in particular, is so devoted to keeping the filibuster to reach this 60 vote consensus that they're going to give the Republicans more time. Why would you do that? Every time you give them more time, they strategize, they come up with a way to kind of subvert things or go around it or critique their talking. No, get them on their heels. Make them take that vote. You don't allow them to figure out how they can put their ducks in an order. Come on. A popular bill comes out of the House. You already have four Republicans that are on there. You put it up for a vote. If you don't get, if you cannot get the 60 vote threshold, you get rid of the filibuster and you pass it. But again, this is like Democrats not knowing how to play politics. So we shall see. <clears throat> and this goes to the the one piece I want to close this first segment on today. Um, in The Guardian, Steve Phillips uh, had a great article, right? Um, and I just want to read a couple passages from it. This is in The Guardian, and it's called uh, Why the Democratic Why Are De- Democratic Billionaires um, Backing White Candidates Over Better Candidates of Color? And as I said, Summer Lee is featured right at the top of the um, uh, on top of it, a picture of Summer Lee. Uh, where a super PAC um, that was flushed with millions of dollars from white billionaires, they spent $3 million trying to defeat her um, in the primaries, right, through an anti-union kind of like conservative Democrat, quote-unquote Democrat. So this is the opening passage. So the 2022 Democratic primaries have seen a surge of white billionaires, ostensibly Democrats, throwing their weight and their money around trying to boost the fortunes of hand-picked, underqualified white men running against candidates of color. They are doing this despite the candidates of color often being more experienced and better suited to both win and govern in a period of fractious racial conflict where democracy itself is under ferocious attack. With white billionaire friends like these, progressives and Democrats are likely to lose political power and also set back the cause of racial justice in this country. Not only is it a bad look and a continuation of institutional racism in a party that is nearly half people of color, but most immediately, it's bad electoral politics. Most of these billionaires and billionaire-backed politicians are weaker candidates than the person of color they are trying to block. And in this article, and I'll put the link in the show notes, but the, um, in this article, they, or, they look at Oregon's 6th congressional district. Right for the primary, where two white billionaires um, back super PACs spend more than $11 million trying to help Carrick Flynn, an inexperienced white academic from Georgetown who is running against Andrea Salinas, a far more experienced Latina state legislator in the most heavily Latino district in Oregon. Right now, she survived it <laughs> and she won that contest in May. Right? But think about that. You've got an experienced, excellent, like Latina legislator who is being primaried by a PAC that's funded by two white billionaires, $11 million to try to feed her by putting in some kind of like an experienced white academic. Summer Lee is highlighted there, is also 
right? She defeated her opponent. But look how close it was. It came down to 978 votes. In a district, if those billionaires hadn't gotten involved, she would have romped there. But the money means something. Los Angeles mayoral race. Lifelong Republican Rick Caruso switched his party registration to Democrat just this past January and proceeded to dump $37 million into the race trying to defeat Karen Bass, an African-American congresswoman and longtime community-based leader. There are few people with more experience and expertise than Bass when it comes to addressing the challenges facing Los Angeles. She also defeated Caruso by seven points in the June primary election, but has to square off against him again in November and what will now be a needlessly expensive and wasteful contest. In Wisconsin, this could actually upset the balance of the Senate. The U.S. Senate race, um, uh, the problematic of those examples, uh, the prospects of progressive people across the country. So the imperative expanding Democratic majority and so on, blah, blah, blah. So as the, the lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, is an inspiring young progressive African-American with both a track record and enormous political potential that is reflected in the, in in the latest polling. Mandela's, um, Mandela's path is being blocked, however, by Alex Lassery, the son of Mark Lassery, the billionaire who owns the Milwaukee Bucks basketball team. And full disclosure, and he says he has contributed to Mandela and all the other black candidates mentioned in this column. Um, so that it says there. Um, the junior Lashry has never held elective office and didn't even live in the state until his father bought the basketball team eight years ago. The elder Lashry has contributed significantly to the Democratic Party, spending $500,000 to support Barack Obama. And coincidentally or not, his son subsequently got a job working for the Obama White House. A third candidate in Wisconsin, the state treasurer, uh, Sarah uh, Godlewski is also running it and also dipping into her multi-million dollar fortune to fuel her bid. But at least she has one office previously to serve that. Right. Last year is a weaker candidate by any, any measure. So this is what we're talking about. And I, the reason why I want to bring this up too, as well is like, this is so critical that we understand that we're also in a fight for the democratic party, right? It's not just to save our democracy. It's not just to win these elections, but it's also what is the democratic party going to be? Right. That is also a fight that is happening. And that's not an unimportant fight. And I got in this little back and forth. I was really frustrated with there was an article that came out in Politico that was mostly about the elect, mostly about the polling and mostly mostly about the, the gubernatorial race and the Senate race in Pennsylvania. Um, the headline basically focused on the fact that, you know, you're basically the polls between Doug Mastriano and Josh Shapiro are within the margin of error right now. And that Josh Shapiro, his campaign, had dumped money into promoting Mastriano during the primary because they believed that he would be a shoe-in to win against Mastriano in the fall because Mastriano is so extreme, right? This is a belief in the Democratic consultant class that has not panned out. Let me think of a good example. Like, um, for example, oh, I don't know, when Donald Trump won the presidency, Right. People, Democrats were cheering on early on, especially in the leadership and powerful position. Yes, let Trump. Ah, he's great. He's going to be elected. He's going to get wiped off the planet. The guy's going to be, he's going to be, it's going to be a landslide. Nope. And then we got stuck with him. Why would this be the strategy? Right. 
And so I wrote about my I forward that article from Politico and by Holly Otterbein and said, look, I'm, you know, this is frustrating me. <laughs> it was like, you know, I said, I said, you know, God, I was just frustrated and saying, you know, here you go. This is what happens when you mess around with politics and you try to play games with politics instead of building a progressive kind of like like issue oriented kind of positive agenda. Right. And then some people got on my back saying, oh, be careful where you point your arrows. Oh, be careful. You know, you shouldn't be attacking Democrats. Keep your eyes on the Republicans. Right. Can we not walk and chew gum at the same time? There and I you know, have to say, look, I will campaign and I'm promoting Democratic candidates. Right. I'm going to vote for Josh Shapiro. I'll tell you right now. Right. I'm going to vote for I'm going to vote for Fetterman right now. I'll tell you that right now. And at the same time. And I'll campaign for them, right? That's not the issue. The issue is we deserve better than this. So we can do both those things, right? I don't have to forget my critiques, right? And it's the same kind of people who come out of the woodwork when they say, oh, don't give these right-wing nationalists a platform by kind of like talking about them. Ignore them and they'll go away. It's the same group of people who have this belief that if you – you launch a criticism or you actually openly talk about something, right? Then, then somehow you're going to magically, you're going to be the linchpin that sinks everything. We've got to be able to do more. We've got to be able to be honest with ourselves about where the democratic party is, what is happening in it, right? So that we can make it a party that it needs to be. I mean, I would love it if we lived in a world where we could have a strong third party, right? Um, and fourth party for that matter. But we're not. The world we're in right now, like I believe our best bet right now is to push that Democratic Party and to take over that Democratic Party in a positive way, right? By kind of bringing in the organizers, right? Bringing in the people that are working on the ground, like bringing just as that, that article highlights, not the white millionaires and not kind of like jump off of the white millionaires, right? But going after people like Summer Lee, right? Organizers on the ground, they're based in the community, right? Those are the candidates we need to be supporting. And when the Democratic consultant class takes aim at those candidates like Summer Lee, we have to be able to call them out. Not because we want Republicans to win, we want the Democratic Party to be better. Make sense? <clears throat> and I say that as someone who's extraordinarily frustrated with the Democratic Party a lot of the time. But right in terms of practical, you know, bare knuckle politics, that's where we're at. We can have all the fantasies we want about kind of like, you know, third party prospects like, you know, in this upcoming election, but <clears throat> it's not happening. Right. We don't even have an organized base. And I think that what we saw with the squad, what we see with the progressives that are getting elected to Congress, what we see progressives that are getting elected to our own state legislature, what we're seeing is we're seeing the building of an of an organization. That is going to take time. Maybe we'll get to the point where that organization and will be so at odds and will be powerful and will be so at odds with the existing Democratic Party that they'll split up like new parties have in the past. But that's in the distant future. We've got like nuts and bolts work to do now. Anyways, all right, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little, a little bit more of what's happening here in uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, I'll get into some of the fun stuff in this week's Last Call. All right, we'll be back right in a moment with this week's, I don't know, PA Focus and Last Call. 
Um, but you know what I have to be able to do first? I have to be able to turn the volume up, right, so that you're going to be able to hear the message. All right, we'll be right back after this quick break. It's not working. Why is this not working? Let me try this one more time. Here we go. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1887. That was the day brewery workers in San Francisco declared victory after brewery owners gave in to their demands. The demands were as follows. Free beer, a closed shop, freedom to live outside the breweries, a 10-hour workday, a six-day work week, and a board of arbitration. Brewery workers in that city maintained their union loyalty. During the two years that followed, the National Brewers Association sought to break the brewers' unions across the nation. But the brewers stood strong in San Francisco. The Brewery Owners Association ordered its affiliated members in San Francisco to fire union workers and replace them with scabs. This led to a nine-month brewer workers' strike. The strike was successful. The National Brewers Association finally was forced to capitulate. There have been other more recent brewery strikes, and not just in the United States. In 2010, Carlsberg brewery workers went on strike in Denmark after bosses told the staff they could only drink at lunchtime. The warehouse and production workers in Denmark were rebelling against the company's new alcohol policy. Previously, workers could help themselves to beer throughout the day from coolers placed around the work sites. According to a company spokesman, the only restriction was that you could not be drunk at work, which was up to each and every one to be responsible. On July 9th, 2015, polar brewery workers went on strike in Venezuela because the company delayed signing a contract and refused to recognize the union. The four polar breweries make 80% of Venezuela's beer. There's no shortage of beer in that country. Venezuela is one of the 10 largest consumers of beer in the world. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryintube.com.